Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and welcome back to our series on Whitley Streber. This is going to be the third and final part. So in the last episode, it felt very dreamy, like uh, to put it into context and like with Whitley and the way that he describes things it, it often comes across as like dream sequences and stuff like that. But uh in 1997, during Mars's, you know, mania going on at the time with like the face on Mars really being pushed around, Whitley cashed in by publishing The Secret School Preparation for Contact. So Whitley starts regaining lost childhood memories from ages six to twelve, where in the summer he and other kids from the neighborhood would get on their bikes at midnight and head into the almost basin where they'd park by an old huge tree, climb up a small ridge and sit on benches in a tiny classroom where a mysterious figure would teach them about the mysteries of the universe. He recalls the events that triggered these memories. Um, in September 1985, a month before the events described in Communion, his scientist friend, John Glideman, invites him over in his, uh, to his Manhattan apartment to show him the most incredible discovery of our time. The haunting, eerie picture of a mysterious face staring up from a desert plain. That's right. We're talking about the face on Mars. Strieber has the strange feeling he had seen this mysterious visage before in a book about Egyptian sculptures. A dream, perhaps? No. No. He questions Glideman about the age and location of the structure. He's told it's possibly 50,000 years old and on Mars. Strieber blows him off, but the image triggers something in him. Quote, no matter how I explained it away, seeing the face was an enormous event in my life, far larger than I could have imagined or even until recently understood. It may have been the trigger that caused the close encounter of December 26, 1985 to take place. The mystery of Mars and the secret school, it would turn out, were deeply bound together. He looks back at his body of work. His entire life has been an unconscious effort to somehow overcome his fears and reach back to the mysterious secret school. With his pal Ed Conroy, they've been to the Almost Basin a number of times looking for the location of the secret school, but never found it. But on November 8th, 1995, Strieber makes an incredible and unexpected discovery. TV producer James Romanovich brings a crew with him to film a segment about Strieber's experiences for a show called Contacts. Whitley explains there's nothing remaining of the site of his adventures in the basin, but Romanovich insists that they film there. They go down a familiar path, clogged with cacti, anthills, and spiders. Then he sees a familiar tree. 
The crew films as Whitley runs up to his tree, overwhelmed with emotion, and hugs it. He warns the crew that the secret school was a bit farther along the path, but would probably find no remains. He guides them where he thinks the site must have been. They find ruins of a wooden structure, possibly a small building. He touches the wood, which causes those repressed memories to resurface. Whitley recalls his first trip to Mars. He doesn't quite remember how he got there, just that he was nine years old and somehow able to breathe. His description of Mars is in hilariously inaccurate. He remembers floating above the surface, seeing the face for the first time, and being transfixed by it. The experience leaves him with a fierce obsession with Egypt. He falls down flat on his face and starts exploring the mysterious eerie structure. Suddenly he hears a ticking sound and immediately thinks it's a bomb. He stumbles upon a city of pyramids guarded by what appears to be a giant sphinx. At nightfall, he hears a female voice saying, We're the Sisters of Mercy. Welcome to our school. He thinks it's a nun, but remembers that there are no nuns on Mars. There are no nuns on Mars, people. Just remember that. A skinny bony hand comes down on his shoulder. The voice hisses at him. At all cost, you will remember the telescope. Do you understand? His mysterious interlocutor pushes his head down and presents him with a huge blue leathery book crusted with rubies. What's interesting here is the blue book, and, and it kind of recalls Betty Andreessen. The book doesn't contain pages, but darkness. She pushes his head into the book. He has the feeling that the book has something to do with his future and past. He's afraid and refuses to look. Now do you see? He wakes up in bed next to his dog, Candy, and immediately rushes downstairs to tell his parents about his strange dream. Then he hears the ticking again. Young Whitley becomes obsessed with the Sphinx on Mars and the mysterious Sisters of Mercy. He takes it upon himself to solve the mysteries of the Red Planet. He tries to learn hieroglyphs and spends his evenings on the roof looking at the stars. His nights become troubled. His mom keeps seeing a large white owl in the backyard, watching the house. Whitley often wakes up in the middle of the night, feeling long, bony fingers touching him. A week after his trip to Mars, he visits the Witt Museum in San Antonio. There, in front of a shrunken heads display, he meets Aline B. Carter, astronomy teacher, poet, and co-founder of Poetry Day in Texas. The old lady promises to let him use her telescope. One night, sick with fever, young Whitley is visited by a mysterious boy wearing a white t-shirt. The boy informs him that he's here to carry him out when he dies. Whitley freaks out. I don't want that. If you die now, I'll be your daddy, the boy replies. Whitley asks him his name. Eddie Death, he replies. Whitley asks if he could say goodbye to his parents. Eddie Death suggests he should do it soon. Then, the two inexplicably start wrestling in Whitley's bed. It's WWE action here. It's a barn burner. Whitley gets him in a scissor lock. Eddie's face turns red. Then, he sees his mom and grandmother looking down on him. 
Eddie Death digs his nails into Whitley's face. He counterattacks with a chokehold. Eddie Death starts spanking Whitley, who explodes and sees stars. Eddie Death hugs him, and the two start slow dancing in the middle of the bed. He hears his mother weeping. Eddie turns into dry leaves and turns to dust in his arms. Later that day, a priest comes to give Whitley his last rites. Go straight to St. Peter. Tell him your name. Then they will open the gates for you, my dear. Whitley sees shining gates and a golden staircase with St. Peter there standing guard. St. Peter is wearing a dark blue uniform and a baseball cap, totally in St. Peter's style. He's carrying a huge book like the one he saw on Mars. He asks Whitley if he's ready to be born. I thought this was death's door. There is no death. You are born into a higher life. Where? On the roof? Whitley's response causes St. Peter to fade away. Eddie Death is now beside his bed. He slips and slides away as Whitley waves goodbye, eyes full of tears, at which point the fever ends. Stuck home during a polio outbreak, young Whitley spends most of his time up in his favorite tree in the front yard. Obsessed with Mrs. Carter's telescope, one night, he sneaks out of the house and rides his bike to her mansion, about ten miles away in pitch dark. He breaks into her home, walks past her bedroom, peeks in and makes his way upstairs to the attic and starts dancing. He twirls and twirls in the dark on the slick floor and crashes into the wall. He then proceeds to the observatory and gets his hands on the telescope. He quickly finds Mars and starts looking for pyramids in the Sphinx to no avail. Looking in awe at the red planet, he whispers, This is magic. Yes, it is, a familiar voice says in the dark. It's not Mrs. Carter. Suddenly, he's lifted off his feet and finds himself walking in a line of familiar children, schoolmates and neighbors, going along a wooden path. A buzzing sound and the smell of electricity fill the air. Someone puts a virtual reality helmet on his head. He is then shown the Big Bang. Universes colliding, and weird-ass space shit. Whitley asks where he is. One of the Sisters of Mercy informs him he's at school. Kids around him start crying in terror and are instructed to sing to calm themselves down and proceed to do so. Suddenly, he witnesses kids trying to escape, only to be dragged back by the scruff of their necks. He even sees a boy throwing himself off the edge of the bluff, be caught and return to his place on the porch. Whitley begs to go home. He's pushed down a path where the children left their bicycles. Then he blacks out and remembers waking up in bed next to his dog. One morning, he gets on his bike and heads down the basin. His consciousness is split into two in parallel times, one part at the basin, the other in the past life in ancient Rome, on his way to the temple of present day, where a sister of mercy rubs his body with some kind of sour goo. In ancient Rome, he was a 15-year-old Greek boy, tutor of a wealthy child called Octavius. Yes, that Octavius, who will later become Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. 
Whitley gives himself credit for Augustus's success and claims that without his tutoring, the Roman Empire would have crumbled 500 years earlier. In 1995, he remembers traveling back in time in a non-physical form, like pure energy or electricity, to Cicero's villa. Yes, Cicero, the famous Roman orator. Just in time to tell him that people will still remember him and his work 2,000 years in the future, right before Cicero is dragged and beheaded in the woods surrounding his villa by four of Octavius's soldiers. He then spends the rest of the chapter going full-on ancient aliens mode, and claims that every ancient structure built by brown people was actually built by the visitors. That's right, he's going full-on Von Donick in here. Near the end of summer 1954, he becomes obsessed with Augustus and reads everything he can get his hands on about ancient Rome. He asks his mom about the Sisters of Mercy. She tells him they don't exist, that it's a euphemism for prostitutes. He never brings them up again. To his priest's amazement, his Latin improves dramatically. He begins attending Mrs. Carter's astronomy class. One night, as he looks at Mars, he exclaims, I see the Sphinx. I went there with the Sisters of Mercy. They live inside a great big mountain. Furious, Mrs. Carter sends him down into the ballroom to wait until class is over and for his mom to pick him up. One night, he steps out onto the upstairs porch and sees a strange craft hovering above the trees. He screams for his mom. I see a flying saucer. She doesn't care. She tells him it's time for bed, and he obliges. To forget about the craft, he turns on his little radio and reads about Augustus until he gets drowsy. Tossing and turning, he can't stop thinking about the craft. He goes on the porch again. The craft is gone, but he notices three little hooded figures in the yard. Disturbed, he goes back inside, turns his radio on low, then hears the front door close very slowly. He calls for his mom and is shocked when the clock downstairs strikes three. He deduces it was the first time he experienced missing time. He moves to turn off his radio and sees a hooded shape in his doorway. As he stares at it, it drifts back away from him with the movement of his eyes. He sits up and greets the creature. Next thing he knows, it's now daytime. He runs to the window door and is completely stunned by the sunny view. He sees three planes that look like fighters flying in a V formation. He notices that some of the trees in the yard, including his favorite, are dead and that the sky is a strange color, purple-blue, not the familiar Texas bright blue. He goes back inside. His bed is not his bed. His radio is gone. So is Candy. He calls out for his mom, but no answer. He runs downstairs. The furniture is different. Everything is different. He sees a TV. The streepers don't have one, but it's different. The picture is in color. The set is flat, about the size of a book and the picture quality is jewel-like. On the TV, a pale white man in a black suit is talking in short bursts. They show an advanced version of a satellite weather map. There's a box in one corner of the screen that shows an image of the sun, and a row of numbers beneath it, and the image of a Boeing 747 jumbo jet, 
which turns out to be Air Force One, grounded at LAX, Los Angeles Airport, because of a sandstorm. He then sees the following. Images of sand dunes blowing across an abandoned playground. Asian people on beds being worked on by doctors. Rows of people lying on the roadside. Masses of dead people in some European cities. A huge cigar-shaped object with bright red lights landing in the middle of Manhattan. Children playing on a patio with black helmets on. Like the one he wore in secret school, playing with dolls that look like the Sisters of Mercy. People carrying what he will later on identify as video cameras. Starved and craving for ham, he heads to the kitchen and is astonished to find his grandparents' old white fridge is gone and in place is a black thing with a glass door. There's no ham. He screams for his parents, dashes outside, and is stopped in his tracks by an old man wearing khakis and dark sunglasses. The old man takes off his sunglasses, and young Whitley knows immediately that he's looking at a future version of himself. Old Whitley tells him, Tell your sister. Young Whitley finishes the sentence for him, that you love her. Then he finds himself back in his bed in 1954 with no memory of how he came back. He begins going on adventures with imaginary space friends. He starts leaving notes for them in a secret area in the house. He gets mad at them, feels that they don't like him very much. He compares them to vampires. For Christmas that year, he asks for a suit of armor. His dad somehow procures a helmet with a visor, a breastplate, and a sword. Quote, I went out on Christmas night, raised my sword to the cold, immense sky, and shouted as loud as I could, Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! And I thought I've gone... And I thought I've got armor now, real armor, but I did not have real armor. Not against what awaited me for what was my whole future out there in the dark. End quote. Whitley then talks about the Mayan calendar and how it predicted a great change for 2012. He predicts that most of the world will run out of food by then. He recalls an experience from 1985 where he woke up at 4.15 a.m. with a bad allergic reaction and the room reeking of tobacco. Neither him nor Anne smoked. After taking some meds, he moves to the guest room to avoid disturbing Anne with the constant sneezing. Lying on his side, he sees three figures come into the room. He hears a series of mechanical sounds in his head and finds himself back to the future again. Is this Back to the Future 2, Back to the Future 3, or the cartoon series? I'm not really sure. Maybe it's the first film, but I, I wanted to keep going because Back to the Future 2, you know. His house is in ruins and overtaken by gross bugs. Everything looks familiar, yet off. He ventures down the street and sees a young man wearing an unbuttoned shirt. Whitley asks him what the date is. 2036. He sees an old woman across the street and realizes it's Anne. She died in 2015. He calls her name and waves, but she doesn't seem to see him or hear him. The old man next to her does hear him. Whitley can tell he's looking at his future self. Old Whitley laughs at him and tells him, This is one of many parallels. Put that in the book. Whitley goes back 
to the condo and returns to his home in 1995. He comes back with unpleasant visions of the future, such as Washington, D.C. and ruins, destroyed by an atomic bomb launched by an unknown force. Whitley dedicates the last chapter of the book to a series of visions and prophecies in the intent to be used as a validating tool for his future work. Our present system of government, made unstable by debt, public disaffection, and the vast chasm between its secret and public sectors, will change radically in the context of economic disruptions brought on by serious environmental difficulties of various kinds. Specifically, I see problems with the food supply disrupted by violent weather, great storms in some places, horrendous drought in others, huge clouds of smoke over a great city. Mexico City is erupting. In the United States, there will be struggle for control, fierce but no bloody. The power of the military-industrial complexes will end, and with it, its official secrecy. What will take the place of the old system will be freedom in the form of a republic that is real. Despite all the chaos, science continues to move from success to success, we begin to understand our deepest selves. As we unlock the meaning of our genes, we will discover that human beings and human lives are constructed in such extraordinary detail that the presence of a level of superconscious planning prior to and hidden within our lives, as suggested by the secret school, must be seriously considered. Fusion is perfected as an energy source, and we will want to mine the moon for fuel but there will be an obstacle to this that will, over, that will be overcome only through profound personal and social evolution. Antimatter will be successfully created, contained, and studied. It will offer us the ability to devise weapons of appalling destructive capacity and small size, but also the chance to use it for the greater good in mega-engineering projects that will need power of antimatter weapons. We will also become able to deploy a meaningful system of defense against asteroids and large comets. In understanding how to contain antimatter, we will also discover how to gain access to parallel universes and eventually to traverse the universe at speeds bordering on the instantaneous. A man presently working inside a classified program will reveal knowledge of how psychic power works. Many research programs, now secret, will become public, whereupon the work will proceed with explosive energy. Average people will gain access to their own enormous psychic abilities as they realize that we all possess and can learn techniques to make them work. Effective methods of reaching them will come into general use. Memory and prophecy will be understood to be tools of the hyperconscious level of mind, and people will begin to use them as such. Time will also come to be a tool, and travel in time will become practical. As the mind frees itself from time, and thus approaches the singularity of consciousness, nations as we know them, directed by power politics, greed and lies, will end. They will be replaced by the only valid form of government that has any meaning to the truly free, one that is founded in love and organized around compassion. 
We will meet people from other worlds. The barrier between the living and the dead will collapse, and it will become possible for the individual to store and process huge amounts of knowledge. We will throw off the bondage of assumptions that we are all small, weak, and frail, and discover ourselves a rare and precious creation, immensely talented and bearing upon this tiny scrap of stone called Earth a powerful responsibility to survive, to grow, and to partake of all knowledge in full consciousness. As we do this, we will also find that others on the same quest reveal themselves to us, and we will join hands with them. As science becomes increasingly honest, open, and powerful, it will begin to detect the presence of deity in an incontrovertibly factual manner. At that point, a Niagara of joy will flood the world as the species consciously joins the companionship for which it was created. And thus ends the secret school. The next book that followed is a short one called The Key. June 6th, 1998, Toronto, Canada. During a month-long book tour to promote confirmation, Whitley is awoken in the middle of the night by an unexpected knock at the door of his hotel room. He assumes it's room service and gets up to answer it. Upon opening the door, he is met by a white-haired man in a gray turtleneck instead. Whitley is on the verge of kicking the man out, assuming that they are a fan, but the man announces that the person who would have solved the mystery of gravity has never been born because their parents were killed in the Holocaust. And, as a result, we are trapped on a dying planet. Whitley obviously lets him in, and for the next 30 minutes, the two have the most extraordinary conversation in history. For the next half hour, with a notepad in hand, Whitley asks the man hundreds of questions on a range of different topics such as aliens, climate change, the afterlife, and machines powered by souls. It never crosses his mind to ask him his name or address or to show his ID. The following morning, he inquires about his mysterious visitor with the hotel staff, but to no avail. He then phones Anne and asks her to never let him deny that the man who was in the room the night before was real. He refers to him as the master of the key and speculates he could be an alien, a robot from the future, or even God himself. Thanks to his remarkable superhuman memory, Whitley was able to remember that one random conversation he had in the middle of the night in a hotel room in Canada three years before and turn it into a thrilling 250-page masterpiece. Um, the key feels largely like a religious text. Or as Jeff puts it, quote, Whitley gets served up a gigantic bowl of New Age world salad accompanied by vague and cryptic parables. This is the God-heavy book, the gospel according to the master of the key. We're going to quote just portions of their conversation because this book consists just largely of the conversation that they ended up having. Whitley. Tell me about the Holocaust. Master. You were meant to have acquired the ability to leave the planet by now, but you are still trapped here. 
you may be irretrievably lost. This is of absolutely fundamental importance, because the earth will soon be unable to support you, and yet you will not be able to leave. This is because of the Holocaust. The destruction of six million may well lead to the destruction of six billion. So it is by far the most important event, by far, of the age. As a result of the Holocaust, the human species' intelligence declined. That is why jets are still used 75 years after being invented. You cannot understand gravity because of the absence of the child of a murdered Jewish couple. His parents left, so the whole species must remain. This child would have solved the mysteries of gravity. It is a consequence, not a punishment. Tell me about God. A million nerve endings direct God's attention into the physical, using an elemental body. If you were among his friends, you would have understood. There is an entire universe behind your backs. Man is unable to see God in this world because he is soul blind. To surrender if you do not return to the forest, you will destroy the earth yourself. Anybody can become God. Tell me about the aliens and the government. The alien threats delivered to your government in secret are a test. You must defeat them. Much is hidden from public officials. This world operates in secrecy. It is your right to fight against official secrecy. It is the greatest present evil. The alien threats delivered to your government in secret are a test. You must defeat them. Much is hidden from your public officials. The world operates in secrecy. It is your right to fight against official secrecy. It is the greatest present evil. Alien encounters are brutal because the kitten is terrified of the veterinarian. To subdue the little creature, violence is unavoidable. Tell me about Rembrandt. Was he a saint? He was conscious. But he wasn't a saint. Radiant being and sainthood are two different things. Tell me about the afterlife. You and the dead share the same world. They aren't off somewhere in space. You, the living, are changing now. The dead are seeing all the, that passes here, but can only affect it indifferently. You can feel their presence more and more as this change progresses. Your dead will be found, for the most part, clinging to what they can of their memories, attempting to preserve themselves despite the magnetic attraction of what would surround them. It is impossible for them to influence the living, as they do not possess the knowledge or wisdom to influence the living. We aren't folders of a higher world. I know that you can ask clever questions. Don't try to play with me, Whitley. Tell me about politics. Their powers come from an electromagnetic field that fills the nervous system above the skin. This field is an organ, like the heart and the brain with it. You can see other worlds, the past and the future. You may see into the lives of those around you. You may even haunt God. The best way to control this organ is via meditation. 
As it relieves the pressure of impressions and coming from the physical world on the electromagnetic body and enables it to expand. Anybody can become God. There is no imperfect human beings, only their vision. What's your name? What if I said, Michael? An archangel in a turtleneck? Legion, then? I think you're God. I think you're God. What's a radiant being? Jesus was the son of man. Take him for his word. He was God, a radiant body fully aware of who he was. You are all God. All are Christ. The difference is that he knew it. God is a hologram. The universe is the flesh of God. Tell me about crop circles. Crop circles are not hoaxes. They are two-dimensional portraits of aliens. They're trying to introduce themselves. Tell me about souls. Human souls are being harvested to be kept inside robot slaves. Tell me about climate change. Climate will begin to change in the year 2000, and this process will accelerate in the next decades. This planet's instability has been the engine of your evolution. The next ice age will begin soon, and this will lead to the extinction of mankind, or to a massive reduction in population given your inability to expand off the planet. This planet is, at present, a death trap. North polar ice is melting, reducing the sanity of the Laurentian Sea. Winds crossing the sea due to increasing difference between lower and higher atmospheric pressures will warm the northern ocean so much that the temperature differential needed to pump the greater part of human industry and culture along the species, most educated populations will be destroyed in a single season. This will happen without warning. It is a natural cycle. Whitley wakes up the next morning with little memory of what happened the night before. As he picks up his notepad covered with scrawls off the floor, he regains a glimpse of what happened. He questions whether the experience was real or not, since the squiggles don't seem to relate to any sort of conversation, as if he had written them in a dream. As he recalls it, the man made him drink a white liquid, which Whitley believes was uh, some kind of milk of Nepenthe, a mythological drug that was given to people who visited the gods as a means of avoiding the anguish of remembering the pleasures of heaven when returning to mortal life after visiting the gods. The master of the key whom Whitley first believed to be a time-traveling alien robot god, may actually have been a Knight Templar, since legend has it some of them fled to Canada to avoid persecution and buried a treasure there on Oak Island, or, you know, as the History Channel and a television show would have us believe, the last 50 pages or so are just some, you know, highlights of their conversations with, like, lots of bolded words it's the least remarkable book in whitley's kind of whole bibliography 
As a regular on Coast to Coast in the late 90s, Whitley and Art Bell become friends and co-write the book The Coming Global Superstorm, based on the master of the key's warning about climate change. Five years later, the book is adapted to the big screen under the title of The Day After Tomorrow, which grosses $550 million worldwide and briefly brings Whitley back into the public eye a little bit. Um, we're going to fast forward through a lot because there really isn't a lot. There's a lot of fictional novels between the publishing of um, The Key and um, um, Whitley's return to kind of the other stuff. But tragedy strikes on August 11th, 2015, when Anne, the pillar of Whitley's life, loses her battle with brain cancer. An hour and a half after her passing, Whitley gets a phone call from an old friend unaware that she had just passed. They felt this urge to call and tell him that Anne is okay. Whitley remembers that shortly before her passing, she told him that in the event of her death, she would attempt to communicate with him from the other side by asking a friend to call him and let him know that she is fine. She also made him memorize a poem about a moth. He then starts catching moths on camera around his house and puts two and two together. Anne's soul has taken the form of a moth, and she's still around. In 2020, the two co-wrote The Afterlife Revolution, in which Anne talks about her experiences in the afterlife. With Anne's contribution from the other side, he relates the events of her death and subsequent communications that lead to their collaboration. I don't really want to get into that uh, right now, but... Um, if it's, it's a book, it's an, it's a wild book, but, um, you know, if that's something that interests you, uh, go pick it up. In 2020, Whitley releases yet another sequel to communion, a new world covering the entirety of his work on the visitors. He focuses heavily on the spiritual aspect of alien contact, which often involves our dead. Reassessing his previous experiences with the visitors, he comes up with the final verdict regarding their nature and goals. Whitley revisits the events of 1985. He names the Blue Doors kobolds after the goblin-like creatures witnessed by Bavarian miners in the Middle Ages who, according to legend, dug these narrow tunnels whose purpose remains a mystery to this day. He reveals that photographer and documentary filmmaker Timothy Greenfield Sanders was the first person he spoke to about his December 1985 abduction. To Whitley's surprise, Tim responds that his wife's parents, who live down the road from the cabin, have seen strange creatures moving about their back garden like the ones he described. Tim also advises Whitley to tell Anne the truth. They were fighting every day at the time because he was trying to push her away hoping she'd leave him, because he felt he was going insane and feared that he might hurt her in the future. When he finally told her, Honey, I think I was taken aboard a flying saucer by little men, she stared at him, with her mouth wide open. Oh, thank God, I thought you were going crazy. She was afraid he was going to ask her for a divorce. I wanted an interesting life but I had no idea what I was getting into when I met you. 
He also reveals that it was Anne who convinced him to not sell the cabin when he refused to spend one more minute there shortly after his abduction because she wanted to see what might happen. The visitors are ready to help us face the situation we are in and to assist us in devising ways to solve the problems we are facing. The amount of involvement they can provide depends on the degree to which we are able to face them and to understand what they can do for us. We cannot receive assistance from them unless we can communicate rationally and practically with them. So this book gets pretty wild with its theories, um, but we're diving into them all. According to Whitley, the Roswell crash was unlikely to have been an accident, but rather more of a donation than a mishap. It is no coincidence that the crash happened near one of the most secret military facilities in the world during a period when that facility was the primary key in the preservation of freedom in many parts of the world. So to put it simply, we kept their presence a secret while we caught up with them technologically, as the visitors had asked us to do. They are not interested in supplicants or slaves. They would prefer us to be independent, self-sufficient companions. Otherwise, we would be of little use to them. As long as our interaction with them flourishes, there will be great challenges for those of us who engage them and extraordinary rewards for mankind as a whole if our relationship with them prospers. He now believes his 1985 experience initiated a new understanding of the world that had previously been hidden from him. Approximately one month after Anne passed away, he began to experience the visitors again. He believes that it was due to something she was doing in the afterlife. He recalls that sometimes, in the 90s, she came out of her office after reading some letters from fellow experiencers for a couple of hours and said, I think this has something to do with what we call death. They were receiving a lot of letters about the dead appearing alongside the visitors. Whenever the visitors came to the cabin, they were often accompanied by the dead. And this is a theme that Ray Fowler explored while investigating the Betty Andreessen abduction. If you buy the book, um, Love in an Alien Purgatory, which is a collection of David Huggins art, you'll find that one of the most unremarkable pieces of art in there is an experience he had when the visitors basically brought his mother, his deceased mother, to see him. According to him, the visitors are primarily non-physical beings. They have physical bodies just like we do, but they are more akin to containers compared to human beings. He believes that the Fresno Nightcrawlers videos are the only authentic videos we have of the visitors. Yeah. Yeah. Several members of his family were involved in military operations associated with the visitors, which he believes contributed to his relationship with them. In his opinion, the members of a family seem to follow the family line once they become involved with them in a military context. His uncle was involved in the Roswell incident, and his father may have had something to do with the presence of a Colonel Guy Hicks living a block away from them. Hicks was the commanding officer at Goodman Field in Kansas when Captain Thomas Mantell 
stationed there, crashed his plane in 1948 while pursuing a UFO. This was all debunked, but he still thinks that his father and an FBI agent who lived down a block from them were watching Hicks and some other men on the street. Whitley has always sensed his father was involved with the intelligence community. He believes childhood trauma is another reason. In 1952, he recalls being involved in a special education project at Randolph Air Force Base that utilized something called a Skinner Box in enhanced learning experiments. He and Anne joined the Gardahif Foundation. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that. In the 80s and began practicing meditative exercise called sensing, which involves shifting one's awareness to different parts of the body before reaching total awareness of their physical form, enabling them to perceive beyond their physical form as a whole, allowing them to perceive beyond their own bodies and other in others' bodies, which, according to Whitley, opened the door to the visitors as strange events started to occur soon after. In one of them, walking home one night, they observed little blue dwarves or kobolds kidnap a man in front of a disused storefront frequented by prostitutes and drag him behind a curtain. Another one, a strange dream in which he was denied access to a university in the middle of the desert by two greys. Almost immediately after Anne passes away, Whitley figures out how to use his implant. He talks about Dr. Roger Lear's implant research, how they found out that almost all of them are made out of uh, meteoric nickel iron and usually encased in a capsule made from the host's epidermis inside muscle. In many cases, a small scoop mark could be found on the body of the host. This scar was would have removed a bit of epidermis from beneath a layer of tissues on the surface, the stratum corneum. He recalls a particular one which emitted a low-level FM signal when it was still inside the host's body and invisible to X-ray once removed. In September 2015, while in a room with a white wall that the sun was shining on, he realized that he could see an oblong slit in his right eye, filled with movement. When he concentrated, he could see words racing past too fast to read, more than the fact that they appeared to be typing in the familiar font of Courier. The words appeared to be related to what he is writing. At the time, he was working on a novel called In Hitler's House, which he wrote under the pseudonym of Jonathan White Lane and self-published because publishers turned it down under the pretense that his books didn't sell. Mm, I don't know. That just sounds like a really fucking bad, terrible book. The words flashing past increased the richness of his associative process. For example, about the way a certain character would react to an insult and came up with the word arrogance, like... Words like ignorance, fire, loneliness, and childhood would be speeding past and were indirectly related to his thoughts and add richness and depth to his writing. One day, Whitley asked, Who are you? And the reply came back at once and slowly enough for him to read clearly. It's me, Anne. The implant also recommends material to look at on Google, which is convenient. I appreciate uh, when I'm directed towards Google searches. 
One night, just as he goes to bed, he hears a soft knock on the door. He gets up, and rather than peering out the peephole, like he usually does, he swings the door open, and there stands two men carrying a typewriter. He recognizes one of them from his childhood. He explains to Whitley that the words don't come from outside his mind, but are drawn deep from his unconscious. When they are typed, they appear in the slit. The typewriter has been developed by Dr. Radiv. Upon doing research, Whitley finds out that the man was a colleague of Carl Jung and worked for years on EVPs and designed a plethora of devices that enable people from the other side of the barrier between the living and the dead to communicate. The men also inform him that his implant has been repositioned because it was stressing his right eye. The membrane behind the retina has been affected by calcium deposits over the past few years because he was using the implant almost constantly. The men leave, and he falls into bed into a deep sleep. Pain radiates through one of his toes one night in October 2015. Anne passed away just a few months earlier, and every night since, he has been spending his meditation sessions at 11 calling to her. A few minutes later, he inexplicably leaps out of bed, grabs his phone, and looks up the symptoms of gout. Not a fit. Not. This is not gout. And my old man had gout, and this definitely does not seem like gout. So, after looking under his bed and mattress, he is unable to find anything that might have shocked him. The next night, he feels strong fingers grab and twist his right nipple and shake it. When he gets out of bed... He checks the entire apartment for intruders. He realizes that the visitors are back and thinks Anne is involved. Whitley shares new details about that weekend in the 90s where he had a film crew and several of his friends over at the cabin to film a documentary and capture the visitors on film. Raven, the person who had a severe allergic reaction to touching a gray, shares new details to Whitley about one of the guests experienced that night who has since passed away. They woke up to what they thought was the sound of pouring rain and thumping. When they realized it wasn't raining, they turned over and saw a group of blue dwarves or kobolds jumping on and around their bed. While this was taking place, Ed Conroy and his friend were astonished to see a close friend of theirs who had died in 1985 in the Mexico City earthquake walk down the stairs, holding up a torn sweater, and disappear out of thin air. Another guest saw their brother, who had disappeared over 20 years before, standing in the woods by the road. When she asked him to come down to the cabin and meet her friends, he told her that she was in the right place and drifted back into the woods. Raven claims she saw the Eye of Horus appear on the wall right before her encounter. Whitley argues that cattle aren't treated that differently by the visitors from us. The spinal cord is usually removed in cattle mutilation cases, something he notes a coyote or mountain lion cannot accomplish. He talks about the significance of the spinal cord as the connection between the physical and energetic bodies. We don't like to think of animals as being conscious or having souls, but souls are everywhere and can be made to feel vulnerable. Spines are pulled out, he believes, in order to capture the energetic body. In July of 2015, Linda Moulton Howe 
who is widely regarded as the world's foremost expert on this phenomenon, reported on his podcast, Dreamland, that cats are frequently found with very precise cuts. That's right. We're revisiting the cats cut in half. In some cases, cats are simply chopped in half without any blood at all, with a bandsaw or a very sharp knife. The cats are either cut in half and are either the front or back, and either the front or back is left to be found. These seem to come in waves moving around the world. Everett Washington was reported to have experienced cat mutilations as recently as August 2019. A representative of the Everett Police Department said on King TV, These are very unique injuries that do not appear to be caused by another animal. No perpetrator has been found, even though, in this case, all five mutilations took place in a single neighborhood. All that remained were legs, uh, uniformly bloodless. According to Strieber, perhaps we are unable to find the perpetrators because they can read and control minds. He recounts the incident with the strange, feral chain-smoking child he stumbled upon in the woods behind the cabin. Having lost their cabin, they moved into a small ground-floor condo in San Antonio, which had a screened-in porch that opened out onto a garden and a cul-de-sac beside it that created a shadowy space outside of their bedroom. Shortly after they settled in, Whitley realized he was standing in that cul-de-sac at night, chain-smoking. As he points out, it wasn't like communicating with the visitors. He felt no love or kindness coming from him. He felt him inside his mind like another presence, as if he was poking inside his head. It was neither gentle nor supportive. Rather, it seemed sexual in a way that was ugly and intrusive, like non-physical rape. The feral chain smoker unearthed some deeply buried homoerotic and masochistic desires he had long denied but explored in a short story called Pain. Upon reading that story, Anne said, This sounds like you want to be whipped. Great, let's get it started right now. Whitley is confident she would have done it, but he did not dare to take the experiment further. Perhaps I should have. And perhaps I should have let that dreadful being enter me more completely. Whitley and Anne became aware that the strange feral chain-smoking boy lived with two strange men in the flat immediately behind theirs. One day, at the drugstore, Whitley witnessed one of the men loading shopping bags with cigarettes and smoking materials and walk out in view of the clerks with two bags full of cigarettes, tobacco, smoking pipes, and cigars. Everyone in the store, except for Whitley, stood there in silence, staring straight ahead as if they were in a trance or under mind control. As the man passed Whitley, he gave him a knowing and venomous look. Upon finding out that the strange trio were squatting in the condo complex, Whitley informed the owner who, had, who promptly had them evicted. The last time he saw the two men, they were trying to sell the owner's furniture, which nobody bought. As for the feral chain-smoking boy, Whitley watched him marching away down the street a few days later. He then recounts how he first heard of human mutilation cases in 2000. Until recently, he didn't have much to support this other than secondhand reports of brutally murdered homeless men in New York and Pennsylvania. 
Mm-hmm. According to a recent transcript, he obtained 17 homeless people, all without known relatives, had been mutilated by having their eyes, genitals, and tongues cut out while they were still alive, drowned in the ocean, and left on roofs near the places they had originally been kidnapped. He then talks about a case from August 2002 in Pennsylvania in which an unidentified person had reported seeing a man named Ted Sees being lifted into the air from the woods above his farm into a flying saucer. 24 hours after he was reported missing, Sees was found emaciated in a wetland near his home with his spinal cord missing. Some tissues from the corpse could not be identified at all. It was neither human nor animal, and yet the corpse appeared to be human both externally and internally. In addition, small metal balls were found in his abdomen. At the suggestion of the nurse who gave Whitley a copy of the report and was aware of Roger Lear's work, the coroners applied ultraviolet light to the remains and found that they fluoresced. Strange fluorescence had been observed on the bodies of people who claimed to have been touched by the visitors. The fluorescing material that was gathered off the skin of seas was tested in the forensic lab. The test returned as an unidentified non-organic substance. According to Whitley, some ancient traditions speak of hungry souls who are non-physical beings who hunger for the taste of the physical world. Perhaps they have a motive for stealing a person's energetic body, or maybe they harvest spinal motor neurons for some other reason involving the use of spinal tissue. He points out that, in the past, the violent side of our relationship with the visitors has often been ignored or covered up. He cites a UFO investigator named Philip Imbrogno, who reported that, that Dr. J. Allen Hynek would not allow reports of cattle mutilations or human abductions and deaths to be included in Night Siege, his last book, released shortly before communion. The reports of abductions were unwelcome news for Hynek, apparently fearful of the negative publicity that could result. In fact, he was concerned that the entire book could be dismissed because people would be unable to handle the stories in it. And I think that there is some kind of truth to that, because when it came to abduction cases, it would seem that Heineck would kick them to other investigators uh, associated with QFOS. But he was ultimately supportive of the you know, of getting down to the bottom of experiencers uh, experiences. And I mean, you can look at the Pascagoula abduction as evidence of that. He was. He he almost treated it like um, he wanted to exploit them kind of for money. But that's just me. That's just how I see him with abductions. Finally, he talks about a letter that Anne retained from the communion days. It mentions that a man ran after some of the blue dwarves or kobolds with a shotgun and was found dead near a lake on the family's property. There was a huge bulge on his chest caused by something under the skin, but no specific cause of death was found. He was deemed a death by misadventure, and the object was not returned to his family. Woodley believes that non-human intelligence, dead humans, normal humans, and other types of entities all come from the same place or have some relation to each other. 
He shifts his focus to address non-human visitors specifically, or the creatures traditionally known as aliens, or creatures that are unable to be surprised. Trapped in what amounts to an eternal present, deprived of excitement, wonder, and beauty, as well as the pain and terror that define the human experience. They want to see and experience the world like we do, and to help us prevent the ecological disasters Whitley has predicted since communion by sharing their knowledge. The true purpose of the communion process is to bring together two widely different perspectives to form a stronger third. The partnership is necessary for both parties to grow and improve, for they are just as flawed as we are. Additionally, they are predators, in a sense, but for their substance, they seek souls rather than flesh. Whitley believes they sometimes consume or at least take parts of souls. The predatory instinct runs deep within them. We shouldn't think of them as malevolent monsters, but rather like animals who can't change their nature. It is important to keep your soul strong in order to avoid being eaten by the visitors, as they can only eat parts of our souls that we ignore or that are damaged as a result of our blindness to the spiritual nature of who we really are. Compassion, love, acceptance, and humility are the keys to growing your soul strong. He speculates that abductions have been on the decline since the 80s because the visitors have finally realized that we are more than monkeys with delusions of grandeur, as they initially believed and have some value in the grand scheme of things. He believes that negative interactions with them are often simply the result of misinterpretation. However, like us, some visitors are just assholes. He theorizes that the Roswell incident occurred deliberately so our species could benefit from their amazing advanced technology and prepare ourselves mentally for eventual contact with the beings from another world. He points out that the crash occurred near a group of sacred stone structures that were revealed by the uh, Jumanos tribe. I apologize if I'm... Uh, maybe the Humanos tribe? who were nearly eradicated by the Spanish conquistadors during their uh, takeover of South America. He then attempts to draw parallels between the conquest of the Americas by the Spaniards and the crash. The conquistadors came with advanced technology that was entirely new to the Americas. Some reports indicate that the residents of coastal towns observed the Spanish ships approaching for days before they landed, but were unable to comprehend what they were seeing. Unprepared for the arrival of a more technologically advanced culture, the indigenous peoples were completely decimated. Instead of perceiving the conquistadors as a danger, some cultures welcomed them without resistance or even viewed them as deities. This is similar to the potential impact of contact with extraterrestrial visitors. It is crucial to exercise caution as the outcome may not be favorable. For example, if the visitors were to land at the White House and assert that the soul exists and all major religions are fundamentally incorrect, it would likely result in widespread crisis. Strieber emphasizes that his entire body of work is simply an individual's endeavor to make sense of the bizarre occurrences that have occurred in his life. He makes no claim to be an authority or to fully understand the situation. 
we must accept the possibility that we may never fully comprehend the truth or that multiple perspectives may be true and false simultaneously. The visitors hold a distinct perspective on human aggression. They perceive our conflicts as a result of overpopulation. Similar to other animals, we strive for space to expand, and when faced with overcrowding, we become inclined to violence. He recounts an experience where he was in a waiting room with a friend whose father was undergoing open-heart surgery. After a few hours, he saw the man's father walk down the hall, only to be told by a doctor that the man did not survive the procedure. Shortly after, Strieber had a vision of the same man being led by two kobolds through the street of a town in India and pushed inside a building where his soul was transferred into the body of a newborn baby. He reflects that the man, although not likable, raised good children and therefore deserved another chance. He theorized that reincarnation is a means for them to save souls from self-destruction or extinction. In other words, he believes that the kobolds are doctors of the soul. He recounts a number of experiences from 2019, including an encounter with the feral chain-smoking kid who appeared to be in a much more improved condition. He appeared clean, peaceful, and content, and did not have a cigarette in his mouth. The child opened his mouth and revealed a healthy pink tongue. The culmination of these experiences was a visit from a being who entered Whitley's body spiritually, resulting in a profound, intellectually stimulating, and almost sexually pleasurable experience. As a result of his experience, Whitley now realizes that this previous understanding of the visitors was flawed, and he now sees them in a new light. Quote, The first step into communion is a very hard one to take. Open. Innocent surrender to enormous presence that underlies reality is never going to be easy, and it is never going to be certain. But it is also a priceless resource, offering a path into greater knowledge, a new science that is more true because it includes more of what is real, philosophical understanding that feeds the mind with the stuff of truth, and limitless expansion of the scope of mankind. He concludes... The visitors must open the doors of their school wide to us all. We have a plane to lose and our lives along with it. Or we have a journey to take. Shall we join in what is essentially a new world and a new way of life? Or do they disappear into the dark and we into the storm? We must decide. And now, so must they. It is time. In February 2022... Whitley participated in a Travel Channel documentary called Shock Docs, The Visitors, which chronicled his experiences with the mysterious beings. As part of the documentary, he returned to the cabin he sold in the 1990s due to financial struggles, which were made worse by the negative impact of a South Park episode that satirized him. At the time, his book sales were low, and he had to declare bankruptcy, resorting to borrowing money from friends to make ends meet. He revisited the family room where he had shared many cherished moments with his loved ones, memories that were imbued with warmth and love. The new homeowners, two compassionate individuals who treated him to dinner and offered him the use of his old bedroom. He fondly remembered the past, recalling the baseball games he and his family enjoyed. 
the Monopoly games they played and the occasions when their son's young friends came over to visit. He confides that some people broke into the cabin back in 1995 and tried to burn it to the ground. He spent the night in his old bedroom that he used to share with Anne, bringing back memories from the many encounters he has had in that particular room. Numerous cameras were set up in the hopes of capturing any visitors on film, though nothing unusual was recorded. However, Whitley claims that he was awakened at 3 a.m. by a kiss or a touch on his upper lip, believing it to be his old friend, the female alien. He also felt Anne's presence in the room in the midst of that high strangeness. The following morning, he led the crew to the exact location where he was taken on December 26, 1985, where he built a stone circle to commemorate the event. As he sat in the center of the circle, he became emotional as he reflected on the traumatic journey that the event had taken him through. I saw that I had come to the end of a long, dark journey. I have left the anger and regret behind, replacing it with love. Thus, the journey of Whitley Strieber comes to an end. Or so one might think. He is currently working on another sequel, called Them. First and foremost, special thanks to Jeff Demers for going deep on this series. He did all the research, all the writing. Give it up to Jeff. Um, Jeff is the hero. He is the fucking hero uh, in all of this. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. You can find all of that and a fantastic digital resource page. Um, you know, there's a lot of great stuff there. A lot of great UFO journals that you can find that have been digitized. Um by the Archives for the Unexplained, uh, by Ignacio Darnaude, and, and a lot of other stuff over there. Uh, if you want to send me stuff, you can do so at uh, P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. You can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that I write and that my buddy Todd Purse illustrates, on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. Uh, we also release high res images on our Patreon pages. Um, so if you're interested in that, join our Patreons. You can get those, they are in uh, PDF form. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song, UFO, as our theme. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain for this podcast. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg, and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or while attending school on Mars. In gray, we trust.
Duvid Media.